When I was six or seven years old, I walked home from school, elementary school, th- three, three blocks. I was wrapped in three layers of clothing on my face and all the parts of my body, three layers of mitts. When I got home, I couldn't move my hands. I was crying for the cold. I walked in the house and the black and white TV was on. I will never forget this moment. And I looked on the TV and the weatherman was on and he was saying a warning to all of you, your parents, don't send your children back to school this afternoon with the wind chill. It is. Please, people, this is Canada with real weather. 103 degrees below zero. So you may think you feel my pain. You may be sympathetic and generally good people, but you don't know pain. I know pain. And then I'd like to talk about my hair loss. It froze and fell out. A six-year-old child with no hair. Let's take an offering. See, this would never happen when Pastor John is here. Okay, grow up, people. Don't st- just stop encouraging him, okay? You people. All right, we're in the book of Acts, and uh, we, this is week 20. Actually, this is week 19. 20 is next week. I was, you know, how long can you go on teaching about the book of Acts? And I wonder if people are getting bored with the, the teaching on the book of Acts. And I called up, I'm going to speak at a church in Guadalajara next weekend. And I called up and said, what do you want me, what subject do you want me to cover? What do you want me to speak on? And um, they said, well, we've been in the book of Acts. And I said, oh, coincidentally, so have we. Maybe I should just take one of my sermons out of the series and preach that. And they said, please don't. (laughs) These are guys on staff. They said, please don't. I said, why not? They said, our senior pastor has been on the book of Acts for a year and a half. (laughs) I think we got it. So, not going to do the book of Acts. But we are doing the book of Acts today. This is chapter 19, and this is entitled, Paul Returns to Ephesus. And I'm just going to read the passage, and we're going to pick it apart and make some observations. When Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when, and another translation is after, so did you receive the Holy Spirit when or after you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, well then, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, other languages, and they prophesied. And there were about 12 men in all. This is Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. Okay, let's set the stage. This is Paul's second visit to Ephesus, and it comes a short time after his first. It's almost like their one visit. But there is this space of time in between. 
Upon his arriving, he encounters some disciples. Now, this is an interesting word that Luke is using here. He encounters some disciples. Paul and Luke are treating these people as disciples. In other words, they're well on the way. This is an important fact given what we're about to find out about them. He calls them disciples because they have begun to follow this new Jewish sect sect called the way. So Paul is treating them as fellow followers, but he asks them a really direct question about their spiritual experience. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, does this seem like an odd question? It's been almost 20 years since the day the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in Jerusalem. So this isn't a new phenomena, this Holy Spirit experience. This has been around in the church circles for 20 years. And yet he has to ask them, have you had this experience? It's tempting to think that this experience would have spread far and wide given the power that was poured out and how it transformed the lives of the early disciples in Jerusalem. That's, in in fact, until I saw this and figured out the timing, I'd always assumed, well, like in our world today, something happens and two days later it's around the world. I talked to a worship leader who wrote a song and recorded it and released it and he went on a ministry trip and two days later he was in a church and they were singing his song. Two days after he released it. You see, we, we think of things as being instantaneous but this isn't what's happening here. Twenty years later, Paul still has to ask this question. None of these followers had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know what it was. And they didn't even know about salvation by grace. What baptism did you receive? Well, the baptism of John. Well, the baptism of John is for repentance for your sins. It is an outward indication that you have repented of your sins, that you want to change your life. But that's just the beginning That's the beginning of discipleship is awareness that I have a problem. But after knowing I have a problem, there's something really important. The solution to the problem. Listen, the doctrine for the repentance of sin tells you you are a loser. Without some other doctrine to come along to fix that, you're still a loser. You're a repentant loser who's unable to change himself. Hello? So Paul says, no, you, you need to understand the baptism into Jesus. And they say, what's that? And Paul explains to them the grace message. You are a loser, but God has done something about it. Your sins have been removed from you. You now have the capability to live free from yourself. And how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. Because you can't fix yourself. You need 
a power that's stronger than your weakness to live inside of you and make life possible. And he sees to it that they get that. Isn't that interesting? See, there's religion which tells you what's wrong. And if you just stop there, you're on a treadmill for the rest of your life trying to fix yourself. Good luck to you. But if you've been baptized into Jesus, your sins have been removed from you. Okay, that's good. That's justification. But what about sanctification? My sins have been lifted off of me legally. I have a right to go to heaven. But how do I live now? Well, we have another baptism for you you're, you're going to need. It's into power. It's into the power of God over your self-nature. You don't have to be selfish anymore. You don't have to be addicted anymore. You don't have to be a jerk anymore. There's now a power living inside of you that's irresistible. You might not even want to change. Too bad. Change is living inside of you. You might buck it. You might fight it. You might dig your heels in. So what? The power to change is living inside of you. E, it, he, it, he has a plan for you. He's going to transform you. Even though you don't want to. No, I do not want to give up my sin. But something inside me wants to give up my sin. And it's so compelling. And it's so good. I guess I'll give it a chance. I guess I'll open my heart. And Paul sees to it, they don't have the idea of power. They have the experience of power. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time teaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He just goes ahead and does it. And their lives are changed. It's interesting to me, in fact it's sad, that the message of repentance, which is the awareness of our sin and our sorrow for it, spreads far more easily than the message that brings freedom from sin. The message of the free gift of forgiveness through Jesus on the cross and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which brings the power to change. How come the sin message spreads so much more easily than the grace and the power message? When I think about it, not much has changed. Much Christianity today is mostly about repentance from sin and a periodic renewed commitment to stop sinning, rather than the power of grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower a holy life. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical, but much of religion today, that's all it is. It's an awareness of sin. It's setting the standard. It's an expression of a holy life. But where's the power? Where's the transformation? Guilt doesn't bring transformation.
All this makes sense of the fact that Paul assumes nothing about the spiritual experience of those he seeks to lead. He comes to this place and he asks them a really direct question. Have you received the Holy Spirit? He doesn't assume anything. I was at a social event a few months ago at another church. And um, it was a dinner thing. And I sat down beside this woman and... and, um, I started asking her about her relationship with God. I figured, why not? You know, total stranger, let's talk about our relationship with God. So I said, tell me. And I wasn't being a jerk about it, honestly. It was just, I thought, why not ask an honest question? We can have a real discussion. I said, tell me about your relationship with God. She said, well, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I said, really, tell me about that. And she began to describe her her journey and her doubts about things and the, the stuff that church had been saying that she was having trouble believing we had a really good talk about it and i didn't close the deal i didn't i didn't even try to close the deal we take people as we find them she was not ready to be talked into being a christian if you talk someone into being a christian someone else can talk them out of being a christian Being a Christian is a supernatural event which involves the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot force it or manufacture it. We can only be a midwife at the birth. So anyway, we had a great talk together. And uh, we got in the car and Shelley said, you know that woman you were talking to? Uh, I said, yeah. She said, what's her story? She keeps coming to all these leadership things. And I said, well, that's strange because she isn't a Christian. What? I said, no, she's not a Christian. How do you know that? Well, she told me. You talked to her about that? Yes. So I did. And I said, perhaps you should tell her leadership that they have someone working for them who isn't a Christian. That's not by way of judgment. It's just handy to know. Right? It's just handy to know. So two weeks ago, we went to another social thing, same group of people, and there she was. I sat down and said, how are you doing with God? Are you a Christian yet? She said, no. I said, okay, go to hell. (laughs) I'm kidding. I just wanted to see if you were awake. And you weren't. It took you several seconds to figure out. The shock didn't even... People, breathe. Breathe deeply. Put your head between your knees and say, I'm at church. Anyway, she's still not a Christian, but she's hanging around. Hello? She started to follow. Paul found a group of followers. They were disciples to a very tiny little doctrine. They had not come into the full understanding of what it is to follow God or be filled with His Spirit. So what? She's following. She's hanging out. She's in process. Lesson to self, don't ever assume that you know the spiritual state of those you attend church with. Don't. Lesson to self, don't be afraid to ask honest questions if you do it with a loving heart. 
If you do it with a loving heart, they'll appreciate that you asked them a personal question about their relationship with God. If you do it with a religious spirit, it will be the end of your relationship. This lesson here, that that they had the religion, they had the doctrine of repentance, they didn't have grace, and they didn't have the experience of the Holy Spirit, tells me that there's two realities Satan does not want you to experience. And I'm calling them realities, not ideas. Not doctrines he doesn't want you to know about. Experiences he doesn't want you to have. The first is the wonder of knowing that God's love for you does not depend on your performance. That's the cross, people. That's the cross. You've been forgiven. Your acceptance with the Father does not depend on your performance. And that's not an idea When it happens to you, it's an experience. It is the reason we are sitting here today as Protestants and not as Roman Catholics. Because that experience happened to Martin Luther at night when he was reading about salvation by grace and not by works. And it happened to him. And it so filled him with understanding and passion that he spent the rest of his life on that one thing. Satan does not want you to experience the wonder of knowing that God's love for you does not depend on your performance. He also, number two, does not want you to experience the wonder of living a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit. He much prefers you stuck in a religious life of constant repentance without the power to change. And Paul has a solution for both of these. Baptism into Jesus and baptism into the Holy Spirit. Paul explains to them that after the necessary awareness of our sin must come the awareness of what Jesus has done to save us from our sin. But he doesn't stop there. After accepting grace, Paul prays for them to experience the Holy Spirit. And as I said, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it. He just goes ahead and does it. Now this idea that he just goes ahead and facilitates the experience by laying on hands and praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit. That is something we would never do today. We would take a long time explaining it first so that people can find it palatable and understandable and predictable and safe. We would teach and teach and teach and teach and teach on it, then cross our fingers in the hope that when we prayed it would happen. We often believe that if we've talked about something, it is the same thing as experiencing it. Hello? This is a particularly Western problem that we have. It's a Western paradigm. We believe that if we've talked about it, it's the same thing as experiencing it. We're we're this way with many, many things. 
This is a Western paradigm, but it is not biblical. In the Western mindset, we usually say, I will experience it once I understand it. Or I will experience it after I understand it. Explain it to me so I can decide to accept what you're talking about. And then I will have or risk the experience. In the biblical mindset, it goes like this. I will understand it after I have experienced it. You see? In the West, we say understanding brings experience. And in the Bible, it says experience brings understanding. Sometimes we just have to risk and trust God. Can you imagine? Jesus said to the guys in the upper room, okay, guys, look, I want you to wait precisely 40 days. And in 40 days, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. I want you to be ready. And they said, okay, explain it. Well, it's kind of overwhelming. What do you mean? Well, you're going to do things you've never done before. Really? Like what? Well, you're going to have an, ex- you're going to have an ecstatic emotional state. Uh, I don't know about that. Yeah, it gets a little worse. In that ecstatic emotional state, you're going to see visions. You want us taking drugs, Jesus? And in those visions, you're going to hear the voice of God and you're going to speak his words to one another. Uh Uh-oh. Sounds kind of vaguely Old Testament. Oh, no, it's much more than that. It's going to really completely change you. Good luck explaining in advance that experience to these people. But once they have the experience, they spend the rest of their lives trying to explain it. Look, remember in high school? Remember high school? Did anybody here fall in love during high school? Did you have like a first love or a crush or anything like that, you know? Like, try explaining falling in love to somebody who's never been in love. Well, your heart pounds. You feel kind of lightheaded. You're kind of spaced out. uh, And they're thinking, you got the flu. You go, oh, no, no, it's not like the flu. It's really good. You can't explain falling in love. It's an experience. Are you with me? How do you explain in advance the Holy Spirit? Maybe you just have to trust him. Maybe the understanding comes after the experience. Ah, that's what you were talking about. Oh, now I get it. So Paul goes directly to the impartation of the experience of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, quote, came on them. Just need to take a minute and explain the use of this phrase. Because this phrase is unusual in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit came upon them. It's an Old Testament reference. When you look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the the Old Testament, you see a lot of coming upons. In fact... That's almost, with the the exception of three incidents in the entire Old Testament, only three times is indwelling used of the Holy Spirit. The rest of the time is coming upon. Now, interestingly, in the New Testament, most of the references to the Holy Spirit are indwelling references rather than coming upon. This is one of the few coming upon references in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? 
pop quiz. Why the change? Why is Old Testament language about the Holy Spirit so often coming upon rather than indwelling? And why in the New Testament is the language more indwelling and less coming upon? What explains this? Right. The Holy Spirit was a transient event in the Old Testament. He came upon people to empower them for service. He helped them to do various things. He came, well, to be a little bit irreverent, he blew in, blew up, and blew out as a wind. He came in, he did something powerful, he left. He didn't live in people because people rejected God in the Old Testament. So the best he can do is come and help people, but he doesn't live in them. The change, the new covenant, isn't simply about grace. Thank God that it is or we wouldn't be here. But it's not simply about grace. It's about this fulfillment that God is going to come and live inside of you. He is going to take your human heart of hardness and he's going to give you a soft fleshy heart he's going to write his law internally on your heart as part of your personality and your character it isn't going to have to be relating to an external standard all the time holiness is going to live inside of you people it's good news it's good news and the holy spirit comes to give you the experience of that So why are they using the coming upon phrase here? The Holy Spirit came upon them. Because this is one of the few references where he's talking about this. What Luke is stressing here is what Paul was praying for. What Paul was playing for here is much more than just the knowledge of the new covenant truth that the Spirit of God lives within us. It is the experience of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit falling upon us, resulting in supernatural power and the blessings that come with it. He is not teaching them a doctrine. He's giving them an experience. And... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, people, you always know it. Always. No. If he's come upon you, you know it. It is an experience, not an idea. He does something. Now, it can be subtle. And in certain circles, we overblow the spectacular to where it's only the Holy Spirit if something outrageous happened. That isn't true. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace. The peace you experience when you sit down to be quiet with the Lord is the work of the Holy Spirit. The comfort, sense of well-being that's not overly emotional and not terribly exciting, but it's so restful. That's the Holy Spirit. But when he comes upon you, something happens that wasn't happening before he came upon you. He is not theoretical. He is as real as the person you're sitting beside.
By using this phrase, Luke is intentionally drawing a reference to what happened on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit first came upon them. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. It's also a reference to the experience Peter saw when he went to Cornelius' house and the Holy Spirit fell on those that were there. He's making references to actual experiences. And it's the same thing that happened to these believers when Paul prayed for them. Now, one more point to make. And then we're going to draw some applications. But this is important. I've been very careful in this message to refer to the outpourings of the Holy Spirit seen here by using the phrase, quote, the experience of the Holy Spirit rather than, quote, receiving the Holy Spirit. And I'm doing this because the early Pentecostals insisted on the idea that you did not receive the Holy Spirit until the coming upon experience. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, they said, well, they didn't mean it this way, but it was taken this way and kind of with spiritual pride mixed in, it turned into this. You don't have the Holy Spirit because you haven't experienced what I've experienced. Now, you need to experience just like what I experienced, and then I'll accept you as one who has the full gospel, one who has had the experience and therefore I can put a stamp on your head that says spirit-filled. And that was their doctrine. And this separated them from all of the churches that they were a part of after they had this experience. It was a sad divide. But listen, here's the answer to all that. Paul tells us in his book to these very Ephesians, which he happens to write later, he says this, You were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now listen. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now when did Paul tell these Ephesians they received the Holy Spirit? When they believed. Not when they had the experience. You become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit. He now indwells you. You have Him, but there is more to His work than just what He does within you. The deposit guaranteeing your salvation, your inheritance. He also works through you. There's His inner work and there's His outer work. And the coming upon experience is largely the outer work. It's the outpouring of power from your life to bless the people around you. As opposed to the inner work of intimacy that he brings with the Father within you. Do you see what I'm saying? The question is not whether you have the Holy Spirit. The question is whether the Holy Spirit has you. Right? You have him... But this is God's kingdom. This is God's church. This is God's world. This is God's plan. Does he have you? Does the Holy Spirit have access to do whatever he wants through you? Well, if you explain it to me and I understand it, then I'll let him. Well, we're right back to that problem. 
Are you open to the gifts of the Holy Spirit flowing through you to display his power outwardly? These are the coming upon experiences. And honestly, we need the whole package. We need the inner work, the intimacy, the love, the witness that you're God's child and he loves you desperately, the promise that you're going to heaven, the gift of eternal security. We need all of that. But that's, that's all about us. What about the world? What about the people around us? What about those that don't know him yet? Now, those are the outer works. And they're often works of power. Okay. Here's our applications from the text. And we're just summarizing what we've already hit. Number one, never assume you know the spiritual state of anyone. Don't be afraid to ask, how are you experiencing the Holy Spirit these days? Doesn't that sound like a funny question? That should be a totally common question. We will say, how's your relationship with God? We often ask that. But how often do we say, how are you experiencing the Holy Spirit these days? Now, if you do it with judgment, that'll be the end of the discussion. But if you honestly care, if you honestly care about your brothers and sisters, your family, that's a really good question to ask. Because the Holy Spirit's important. If you're not motivated by love, don't ask. Number two, and this is really important for us as Western Christians. Never assume that just because our theology is correct regarding the Holy Spirit, our experience matches our theology. You know, this is this Western idea that if I can talk about it and explain it, that's all there is to it. Does our experience match our theology? The question is not, do I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? The question is, when was the last time I experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? That's a fair question. I ask myself that a lot. My longing is to be able to say this morning... Every day. When did you last experience the power of the Holy Spirit? I want to say in my prayer time this morning. Where I sensed his presence. Where I was with him. And he was with me. For me it was. You're a good, good father. That did me in. Rocked my little world. Because the truth of what I was singing became an experience. If you have to go back too far in your memory to answer the question, when was the last time I experienced the power of the Spirit in my life? You need an upgrade to your operating system. You need to go on to Holy Spirit 7.0. Or is it 8 or 10 now? I don't know. Number three, application. Satan's agenda for you is that one, 
you will forget the wonder of grace and go back to living under law. Or two, that you will default to a subnormal Christian life by avoiding the risks that come with seeking to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in and through you. The question here is, how is Satan trying to move you away from the coming upon experiences of the Holy Spirit? Which really becomes the question, what are you afraid of? So can we just do a little exercise here and apply this last point? If you would, close your eyes and let's just ask the Lord to reveal to us What is standing between you and more of the experience of the Holy Spirit in your life? Holy Spirit, I ask you to reveal to each one of us the answer to that question. What is it that's standing between me and more of the experience of the Holy Spirit? What am I afraid of? Holy Spirit, please reveal to me what stands in the way. Anything coming? Is he showing you anything? Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Worry? Worry about what? Oh, you mean just just general anxiety gets in the way of being close to God. Okay, good. I mean, not good, but thank you. What else? Anybody else? What, what did he say is in the way? Man, Phil, I don't know. I just got to preach on this for a minute. I don't know that that was God telling you that. I don't think your sins stand in the way. I think Jesus saw to it that they don't. I think your guilt... And false accusation might stand in the way for sure. Make you feel unworthy so you can't believe that you could have him operating through you. But that isn't God. Yeah, okay. You know, if you're, if you're consciously practicing sin and you know it, then it is going to get in the way of your relationship with God. Mostly because of the accusation that it brings to you. It will cause a great degree of shame which, which, which argues you don't have a right to go back to God. You know, sin isn't the problem. It's what we choose to do with it. Sin causes shame. Shame causes us to run from the Father and hide. It's the Garden of Eden all over again. 
And once we run away from him and hide, we're not in his presence anymore. And now we're easy pickings for the enemy. You know the best thing you can do with your sin? Admit it as fast as you can. Run to him. Throw yourself into his arms and say, I'm sorry, wash me again. The smart thing, run to him with your sin as hard as you can and throw yourself into his arms and say, I am a mess. And I need your love. Just tell me one more time you love me. Tell me one more time I'm forgiven. And the joy that comes on you when that is done and you feel his intimacy will cause you not to want to sin anymore. You know the answer to most sin in your life, habitual sin in your life? Improve your relationship with God. The sin will take care of itself. I once was teaching on the parable of the weeds and the tares, you know, the the weeds and the good wheat, the good wheat and the bad wheat. And I asked a successful farmer up in Canada, I said, what do you do about weeds? Do you use use a herbicide? How how do you do it? He said, well, you, you don't. You don't focus on the weeds. You grow good wheat. He said, what? He said, oh, yeah, if you grow good wheat, it's very healthy. It grows up quickly and strong. It gets above the weeds. It blocks the light to the weeds, and the weeds end up dying. You focus on the wheat. You don't focus on the weeds. A lot of the time, I mean, if you'll just... See, Satan wants your shame to separate you from God. Because if you get back in the presence of God, the weeds begin to die. Hello? Just come back to God with your sin. Just say, I'm a loser. I'm a big, huge, immense loser. But crazy as it seems, you've told me you love me and you've forgiven me and you want a relationship with me anyway, which seems absurd to me. But you said it, and I'm choosing to believe it. So I'm back. I need love. I need forgiveness. Just wash me one more time. And you know what he does? He washes you one more time, and he picks you up, and he cleans the mess off your face, and he kisses you. And he says, you're my precious child. I love you. And that joy that comes up inside of you is so supernaturally wonderful because it's the Holy Spirit at work, by the way. That, that joy that comes up inside of you is so wonderful. You just want to serve him. You just want to bow down and give your whole life to him. Because he set you right again. John says he restores your righteousness. He he restores, you are always righteous in his eyes. He died for your sin, they're gone. But he restores your understanding of your righteousness, which completely transforms your sense of belonging and worth. And you go out to live with him with everything you have. We've got seven minutes. Any questions or comments? I love this part. This is my favorite part. I always hope I'll finish early so we can do this. Get a little interactive. What are you thinking? What bugs you about the message? What questions does it raise for you?
Absolutely. Look, there's a difference between being a convert and being a disciple. Converts are going to heaven. That's entry-level Christianity, okay? But he has a much greater plan than just getting you to heaven. He wants to use you to advance his kingdom now. And those that say yes to him will experience much more of him than those that say no. And that's not unfair on his part. I mean, that's just common sense, right? So there's a huge benefit to giving your life to him here and now. I mean, the more committed you are, the more you say yes to the Holy Spirit's work, the more of the Holy Spirit's work you experience through you, the more joy you have. I mean, Jesus said to you, the parable of the master and the servant, he says, you do your work in the field, come in and experience the joy of your master. The more we're near him in what he's doing, the more of his joy we experience. The more we give up our lives for him, the more we find them. The more we stop living selfishly, the more we experience real joy. It's a, I know it's a paradox. You lose your life to find it, but that's how it works. Thank you. That's a really good question, Eric. Yeah, Rick. No. You know, this is hard because we live in a culture that worships the sensational. Everything must be bigger and better than the last time. We are an event-driven culture, not a process-driven culture. So we belittle the hints and innuendos and rumors of God in our life on a daily basis. We just disregard them. Well, we're waiting for the glory balls from heaven to fall on us and you know, make us prophesy or something. That's half of us, okay? Half of us are depreciating the little things, waiting for the big things, missing the God every day. The other half of us are exactly the opposite. I'm really happy with all the little things God is doing. Please don't threaten me with power. No, come on, guys. Why don't we be honest about our human makeup? I, I remember a... Friend, a friend of mine, when we were all coming into the things of the Spirit up in Canada, uh, I, he was very hesitant. He was holding back. And I said, Chris, what are you doing? You're holding back. He said, yeah, I know. I'm holding back intentionally. I said, why? He said, I'm afraid. I said, what are you afraid of? He said, two things. I said, what? He said, I'm afraid that if I open myself to this, something will happen. Like it did to you. <laughs> and I said, what's the other thing? He said, I'm afraid nothing will happen. <laughs> he wasn't trying to be funny. I mean, at the same time, you can have two fears. Oh, God, don't make me crazy like those people. Oh, God, don't leave me the way I am. You're, you're kind of making it hard for him, you know. He's going, hmm... How far do I turn the knob? You know? How much power? He says he wants more of me in his life, but every time I start to come and suggest something, he freaks out and runs away. Yeah, I experienced that too. Uh, the whole thing about my mind was fear of the unknown. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I feel the same thing. And people feel the whole, they're afraid of the Holy Spirit because he's a ghost. <laughs> Ew, he's a ghost. You, know, you don't see him coming. He's like the wind. But here's the deal. This is what helped me, Carol. This is what helped me. Every, when, in the early days when I was kind of afraid, uh, I would remember, wait a minute, he's the spirit of Jesus. Is there anything about Jesus I don't trust? Jesus is the best. I mean, he is the best. When he said, I got to go back to heaven, but don't feel bad, fellas, because I'm sending the Holy Spirit in my place. He wasn't sending the junior varsity team. His spirit is with us. If you can trust him, you can trust the Holy Spirit. What else? Yeah. What if there's someone here that wants to experience that? What do we do? Good, good question. I'll, thank you. I was going to phone you this week and say, we need to do that on Sunday. You guys be ready to do it. And then I forgot. <laughs> Gary, look, I had a lot to do this week, okay? It was, I wrote four sermons this week. Four. And PowerPoints. Getting ready for Guadalajara. I mean, that was a truckload of sermons. Okay. Gary said... What if there's someone here that wants that experience, wants more of the Holy Spirit? What should we do? Well, we've we got to do that. We've got to give an opportunity to receive and pray and lay on hands. Thank you. That would, we'd be derelict not to. That was your point, too. All right. Just a sec. sec. He put his hand up first. Somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. Boy, that was well put. Um, Here's the deal. Once a month, we have a food outreach, the Lutheran Church, and the people that come are seriously poor. They have no medical uh, plans whatsoever. And we pray for the sick there, and we've seen so many miraculous, I'm not exaggerating, I mean miraculous healings. And Les leads that. If you want to go and learn how to pray for the sick, and you want to see some power in your life, don't sit around thinking about it. 
Go find him. Let's just stand up for a minute, would you? Go find him and say, here's my phone number. The next time you're going to go do one of those, would you please call me so I can go and be a part of it? That's how he started. He has an amazing healing ministry. Blows mine away. We were doing that. I was leading the prayer teams over there. And he came and said, he was a total stranger. He walks in the room. He says, I understand you people pray for the sick here. I said, yeah, we do. He said, how do you learn to do that? I said, stand right here when we do it. And he started doing it. And now he has a phenomenal healing ministry. I mean, seriously, 10 times better than I ever experienced. But that's his calling. That's the unique ministry God's given Les. But he can help you discover that ministry in your life. And you're going to see God do more things than you ever anticipated. And you're going to grow in your gifts. But you've got to go out and risk it. You've got to let go of the TV remote and go and invest two hours in helping poor people. Heaven forbid. Do it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You will you will understand it when you experience it. Yes. Then? Not a chance. <laughs> You're dealing with the old man. <laughs> I'm older than you. What God said in pre-service prayer, which goes along with what the Holy Spirit does, He says, "Pray." In other words, pray that my people will pray my prayer. And it sounds really simple, but that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. If we pray the things that He tells us to pray, we are praying His will, and that's in right. that we will see the power that yeah. given to us yeah. through us to those people. Exactly. So it's really—I mean, that should be our prayer always: that we are praying for one another, that we are praying yeah. what God is. Praying. Yeah. Yeah. And it was exactly what you said, and it was just a confirmation to me. Which Perfect. Okay, let's do this. It's time to end. This is so much fun doing this, but we're using up our Sunday school teachers' reserves. But let's do this. If this message has um, stirred up a hunger for more of the Spirit in your life, or you haven't had what you can say is, "I, I haven't had a Holy Spirit experience like that. What are you talking about? Then... If you're willing to risk, you're ready for that. We want to pray for you. So, Les, why don't you come down and um, where's, yeah, prayer teams and you guys. And if anyone wants more of the Holy Spirit, you come down and, and we'll lay on hands and we'll pray for you for that. Otherwise, 
Go eat all the sugar you can. It's free. God bless you all.